The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. We want to look at the scripture reading today, which comes out of Luke 19, verses 45 to 48. Luke chapter 19, verse 45 to 48, and it reads, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Father, as we approach Easter and um, reflect on the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, give us a heart of understanding to realize uh, the fullness of this gospel message and what Christ really came on this earth to do, that not only would it result in understanding but in obedience. Even as we look at this passage today of how Christ cleansed the temple, help us to understand what the meaning of that act was for our lives and our church, where we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I pointed out now numerous times in our study of Luke, ever since Luke 9, 51, Jesus has been on this slow but unwavering final journey to Jerusalem, where he knows he is going there one last time to lay down his life. Well, that journey has finally come to an end. Jesus has reached Jerusalem. The final five chapters of Luke's gospel now record the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, which begins on Palm Sunday, which Pastor Peter preached on last week, and will end with Resurrection Sunday, otherwise known as Easter. This week is also known as Passion Week. It comes from the Latin paseo, which translated means suffering. It describes the suffering that Jesus went through in this final week of his life. In the incredibly short span of five days, we're going to go from adoring crowds ready to crown Jesus as king as he entered Jerusalem to Jesus being nailed on a Roman cross and put to death. As the crowd shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And it's breathtaking, the dramatic turn of events. What in the world happened in these short five days that caused everyone to go from celebrating Jesus as the coming Messiah to wanting Him dead? Well, as Peter alluded to in his message last week, much of the answer to that question revolves around the kind of Savior that the people wanted in Jesus. And the kind of Savior that Jesus actually revealed Himself to be. It's interesting that throughout most of Jesus' public ministry, He was intentionally secretive about His true identity. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 17, and verse 20, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And then in verse 20 it says, Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now to keep it on the down low. Don't be blabbing this around the neighborhood to other people. This is secret knowledge just for you. Why didn't Jesus want people to know that he was the Messiah? Well, this episode recorded in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, I think helps us to understand the reason behind Jesus' secrecy. John chapter 6, verse 14 to 15 says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You see, the Jews were so desperately looking for their promised king, their Messiah. But they were looking for the wrong kind of king. One that would beat up the Romans and return Israel to its former day of glory. But Jesus had come to the earth to die. And so in order to accomplish his mission, he hid his true identity until the right time came. And in this Passion Week, that time had finally arrived. And so we see a very interesting change in Jesus' revelation of his identity. In these last days, he becomes bolder and bolder, letting people know who he really is. When he would stand trial before the priests of Israel, Mark chapter 14, verse 61 to 62 records this interaction with him and the priests. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus finally acknowledges it. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Finally says it. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that everyone has waited for. One of the ways that Jesus becomes bolder in this final week in revealing his identity as the Messiah that he kept hidden for most of his public ministry is by fulfilling a whole series of these messianic prophecies that were made by Old Testament prophets that said, this is the sign that you will know that the Messiah has come. When Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the little colt of a donkey, that wasn't some random sign. But it was to send a clear message to Israel to fulfill Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus was sending a message to the people. That guy that Zechariah prophesied about, He's here in your midst this day. And we're going to see that Jesus, the very next day after the triumphal entry, 
rushes to the temple. And it's to fulfill another prophecy of the Messiah found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And Jesus begins to do one thing after another in this Passion Week to show that he is the fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. Once in the temple, Jesus drove out everyone who was selling, we're told, by Luke. Now, this is what's interesting is Luke tends to be one of the longer Gospels, and he tends to give more details about events than the others do in most circumstances. But regarding the cleansing of the temple, Luke is sort of uncharacteristically terse, very brief. Pretty much all he says is Jesus went in there and drove out those who were selling. But when you read the other Gospels, you get a fuller picture of what a violent scene unfolded that day. As he began tossing benches that were holding doves for sale and turning over the tables of the money changers and then basically chasing these merchants out of the temple and then single-handedly stood at the gate of the temple barring anyone that was trying to enter in order to sell their goods. And then he began to teach them once he had cleaned out the temple. You see, in those days, during the holidays, sorry, during holidays like the Passover, thousands of Jewish and non-Jewish pilgrims would descend on Jerusalem in order to offer their sacrifices at the temple. And As they would come, they would have to find animals to give to God. Now, of course, you could bring your own animal from whatever foreign land that you came from, but it would be much easier to buy an animal right there in Jerusalem. Not only that, but that animal had to meet the requirements of the Mosaic Law. And it was the priesthood that told you whether that animal is acceptable or not. And here was the thing, what historians tell us. The priests had a vested interest in rejecting any outside animals in order to force you to buy one of their animals in the temple, you know? And when you had to buy one of their animals, you knew you were going to get ripped off. They would charge double, triple, quadruple what that animal was worth because this was an approved animal by the priests. Have you ever bought a $5 soft drink at the United Center? or Great America, it's the same principle, right? They've monopolized that market. If you want a Coke, you're going to pay $5 as long as you're there. And that's the same thing in the temple. You want a sheep? You're going to buy a sheep at four times the market rate. The money changers were there because when the worshipers came, they also had to pay a temple tax in order to worship. And the only currency accepted was Jewish currency. So these people would come from foreign lands and have Greek money and Roman money, and they would have to exchange the money for the acceptable Jewish currency. And so they also cornered that market, and they charged outrageous commissions to change that money. And what historians told us, tell us, is that all of that enormous wealth that was being collected 
through this business at the temple ultimately flowed into the pocket of the high priests. And they became filthy rich out of this worship at the temple. And so as he drives out these money changers, these sellers, he tells them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. In his rebuke, he refers to two Old Testament passages, one in Isaiah 56 and the other in Jeremiah chapter 7. And it's very important that we understand the references Jesus is making in order to understand the teaching. I want to actually look at the second one first, this, you have made it a den of robbers. And then secondly, we'll look at the house of prayer quote that Jesus refers to. When he calls these people robbers and making the temple a den of robbers, he is quoting Jeremiah chapter 7. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God commands the prophet Jeremiah to stand at the temple gates and rebuke the Israelites. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 3 to 4, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in the deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, what was going on in Jeremiah's time was the people were living in all kinds of sin. They were doing whatever they wanted, but they still kept coming to the temple and offering sacrifices. So God says, rebuke the people because you have this empty mantra that's meaningless saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple, we go to the temple, we offer sacrifices. Isn't that good what God wants of us? And he says, all that temple worship is meaningless. It's empty. And then he goes on in verses 9 to 11, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury? Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. You see, this is the thinking of the Israelites. We can do whatever we want, anytime we want, as long as we keep coming to the temple and offering our sacrifice. As long as we keep doing that, we're good with God. And the rest of the time, hey, it's our time. We can do whatever we want. And God says, you've turned my temple into a safe house for criminals, meaning you take comfort in the fact that you're doing this religious act when actually you're totally far from me. This is religion at its worst. And it's a warning that all of us need to take to heart. In other words, this is what I'm asking. Do you take comfort in the familiar traditions and rituals of church life, which can give you a false sense of closeness with God? When in truth, you are living life totally on your own terms. In other words, do you use church to relieve a feeling of guilt 
for the way you live your life Monday through Saturday and yet feel, hey, at least I make a token gesture toward God when I come here and worship. God says when you do that, you are using religion to hide your sin rather than to deal with it and come before me in genuine worship. It's like a bargain we strike with God. I'll come to church on Sunday, leave me alone Monday through Saturday to live my life the way I want. And this is what God was calling out the Israelites for. Worship doesn't work that way. It's not something you can turn on and off at your own pleasure. When you come and worship, it has to reflect an entire life surrendered to me. What happens here at 10 a.m. on Sunday has to be consistent with what happens outside of these walls as we go into a world. The other Old Testament reference, which I believe is linked with this one, refers to the temple as a house of prayer. Mark's gospel actually gives us the full quote of Jesus. We're not sure why Luke truncated it, but if you look at Mark chapter 11, verse 17, it says, And he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Here Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, verse 6 to 7, it says this, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. There is this undeniable missions bent to this passage, pointing to the fact that this temple in Israel was never meant to be exclusively for the Jews. But as God taught the Israelites throughout the Old Testament, this is to be a place of worship for all nations. All people are to come to this place and realize that I am the God over this whole earth. In fact, when the temple was first dedicated by King Solomon, who built the original temple, this is what he prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41 to 43. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Isn't that incredible? As Solomon is dedicating this temple, he says, even when foreigners hear about you, because they will hear about you, when they see the Israelites worshiping you, and they come to the same temple, Solomon says, hear their prayers as well, and do whatever they ask of you. 
I think this is one of the great misconceptions of the God of the Old Testament. Is that people think that he only cared about Israel and pretty much wanted to wipe out everyone else on the earth. But what we find in the Old Testament is actually a God whose heart goes out to the foreigners, to the people outside of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 to 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Saying, listen, I don't only love you, Israelites. I love everybody. And so if you really know my heart, then you also will live, love people that are not your countrymen. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 12. Assemble the people, men and women and children, and the aliens living in your towns, so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. You see, the Old Testament was filled with these constant reminders to Israel Don't exclude the foreigner in your worship. They are just as vital a part of your community as you Jews. And so when you gather, when you worship, invite them. Bring them into your assemblies so that they too can know me. But that's exactly where the Israelites went wrong here in this temple worship because the sellers and the money changers that Jesus chased out were doing their business in what was known as the court of Gentiles. This court was designed specifically as a place of worship for the non-Jews. Foreigners who would come from other places to worship, that was their designated area of prayer. And you could see what the Jews thought of that, right? They turned it into a raucous marketplace. In essence, it would be like trying to worship in the middle of a Mariano's during full business hours, right? I mean, it'd be ridiculous, You couldn't do it. In essence, the message was loud and clear that the Jews were giving to the Gentiles was you don't matter here. This is your place of worship, but it's prime real estate for our shops. So we're just going to move in here and bring our animals in here, and we're going to turn this into a marketplace. And Jesus looked at that disrespect for the foreigner, and he said, this is so not the heart of God, who longs to see you be a witness to the other nations and bring people to the light of Christ. As the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 49, verse 6, he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. What I am saying is this. God's heart can only be fully understood when we see that His love for the whole world, His desire to see worshipers from every culture and nation brought together as one people for His glory. That's the heart of God. He says, you cannot fully know me. You cannot fully understand me until you are actually worshiping side by side with others who are not like you. And you begin to get a glimpse 
of my heart. I think one of the unfortunate consequences of sin is how it has segregated our world into groups that hate and mistreat one another and mistrust each other. It's a world filled with bigotry and stereotypes, racism, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. We're seeing it in full force in our world today, aren't we? The battle lines are drawn pretty clearly. And what we're seeing now are some pretty strong sentiments, like, let's get rid of all the immigrants in this country. Let's take back our country that we've lost to these foreigners. This is just woven into the very fabric of human nature. It's a us versus them mentality. The Jews displayed it throughout their history. The Gentiles were dogs. They were not worthy of God. And so they excluded them from the worship of God. And here's the sad truth is all of that bigotry and racism and segregation is not limited to the world. It exists even in the church, doesn't it? And it's sad that it does, but it's true. Great Martin Luther King Jr., one of his most famous quotes, said once, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of America. And what he meant by that is, The rest of the week, we rub shoulders with all different kinds of people through work or through our neighborhoods or through all other means. But for some reason, when church comes around, we all just want to get together with our own people. And everyone has their own church. And so it becomes the most segregated hour of the week. And I think as Jesus cleansed that temple, one of his clear messages was this. I am... God of all people. And I am building a church for all people. And if you really want to reflect my heart, then demonstrate it by the way you treat those who are not like you, who are not of your same ethnicity, who don't come from your same family lineage or have the same skin color as you. Pastor John Piper confesses of his own experience growing up in South Carolina, coming right out of the the Jim Crow era. And as a child and as a youth and even as a young adult, he confesses that he was a part of that culture. In the way that the whites in the South treated the blacks, he didn't see it as a problem. He didn't see it as a sin. And so one of the big journeys for Piper as he was confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, was dealing with this hidden racism that was sown into his spirit from his youth. I want to show you a little clip of Piper sharing about the story. I shared it with our leaders, community group leaders, a couple months ago. And I'm only going to show you a portion of that, but it helps you to see the journey that Piper went through as he struggled with this issue of gospel and race. In 1971, Noel and I went into Munich, Germany, where for three years I studied working on an advanced degree in New Testament studies. Not only were we in a a country where we we were a minority, I couldn't speak German when I went. 
You feel like a first grader when you can't speak the language, even if you're working on a PhD. And so you tend to feel like this must be what it's like to be on the outside culturally. And then we went to visit the concentration camp Dachau and saw the ovens and the pictures and the old barracks with the cots, three-deckers high, and thought through what, what was the meaning of Jewish people being rounded up and like cattle sent to the gas chambers. And I thought, this is, this is racism at its most horrific. I had now a, a son, Karsten, and my wife and I and Karsten moved to the only job that opened up to me after my graduate studies, namely a job teaching Bible at Bethel College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Increasingly, I felt a, a profound desire to preach the Word of God into a setting that would be more diverse, diverse in terms of age, simply, diverse in terms of, of socioeconomic, and, and maybe, if God willed, ethnically, racially. So in 1980, when God broke in, uh, he said, I, I want you to preach. So look for a, a pastoral job. The first church to contact me was Bethlehem Baptist Church in downtown Minneapolis. I'd never been there. I didn't know where it was, even though it was just eight miles from where I lived in New Brighton. I got in my car. I said, I want to go see where this church is so that I can wonder if I should even consider going there. To the west was the high-rise, the ritzy downtown hotels and business people. And to the north was kind of a light industrial Valspar paint company. To the east was the university, 50,000 college students just across the highway. And to the south, Phillips neighborhood, LA Park neighborhood, the poorest neighborhoods in the city. And I thought, this is gold. I love where we are here. And uh, they called me, and I said, okay, if I'm going to minister in this neighborhood, I'm living in this neighborhood. And we, we looked for a house, found one within walking distance, about seven minutes away by foot. So we've lived there now for, what, from 1980 until 2011, 31 years in a neighborhood which is very ethnically, racially diverse and uh, have ministered the word four children, four sons. We never had a daughter, and Noel always wanted a daughter. And then a phone call came. On the other end of the line was Phoebe Dawson. She's a, a social worker who worked with uh, women in crisis pregnancies, and she said to Noel, I have a little girl here. She was just born, and I think she's for you. Well, thank <laughs> you. You don't say that to a, you know, a 48-year-old mom who wants a girl unless you expect there to be some kind of earthquake. And uh, there, there was an earthquake. I mean, Noel hangs up the phone and looks at me and says, Phoebe thinks she has our daughter. <laughs> I'm 50 years old, and this daughter happens to be African-American. 
So for two weeks, Noel and I took long walks. We walked through the Arboretum and tried to assess our lives. What are our lives for? What, what are we going to do with the last chapter? And God did a remarkable work in us. He taught me this. He said, look, if you act consistently with your convictions about interracial marriage and the nobility and beauty of diversity, this choice would commit you to this issue till you're dead. And that swung it for me. Those three things, love for my wife, love for this little girl, and love for the cause, the cause of, of Christ-exalting racial harmony and racial diversity. Because if, if I lock in to my family the issue, this beautiful little woman created in the image of God and say, you're mine till we're, one of us is dead, then I won't ever be able to run away from this. And I wanted to draw that line in the sand in a decisive way at age 50. Then that's what I feel like today, that God has given us a, a beautiful and now Christian daughter who we're very proud of and whom we love with all our hearts and has brought alive a, a love for racial diversity and racial harmony in a, in a gospel-based and Christ-exalting way that I'm profoundly thankful for. I remember when, when I decided to adopt Talitha, I wrote down in a letter that the fact that she's black is important. God made blackness, and yet that she is created in the image of God is, not to overstate it, a million times more important. When I look at her, I'm going to see human being created in the very image of God. And then secondly, down the line, I'm going to see a particular kind of skin or hair. That's huge. The Bible brings the image of God to bear on this issue and it's massively important. And a second way the Bible brings it to bear is that it talks about there being one father of us all. All the nations came from one father according to Acts 17, which means we're all related. You, you can't look with disgust or dismay or dishonoring on another human being as though they're not in the same family. They're in your family. If you try to demean them, you're demeaning your, your family. It is fundamentally a cross issue, a blood issue, a gospel issue that is at, at play here. And what's so amazing is how the gospel by faith alone, having our sins forgiven, that gospel is the key to triumphing over these sins that militate against the advance of racial harmony and racial diversity. This uh, issue of ethnicity and race is a tough one, isn't it? 
Um, there's something just so alluring about just gathering with your own people and saying, you know, this is where I'm home. This is where I'm comfortable. I think this is one of the great challenges of ICC. Even if you look around this room now, I, I think if you're non-Asian, you look and go, it looks pretty uniform to me. Say, a bunch of Asians worshiping. And if you're Asian, you say, oh my goodness, you know, it's like, there goes those Koreans again. Or, you know, that's just the Filipinos, they're like that. Or, yep, there's the Chinese, you know. And it's just, you can separate yourself as thinly as you want. Ah, you know, white people, you know. These are the scary thoughts that climb to the surface, you know, um, that divide us, that makes it so easy for us to go the other way. But I think as we saw in Piper's own testimony and everything we're seeing in Scripture is saying this is the heart of God, is sin divides us. Sin makes us accentuate our differences. Sin makes us stereotype and judge each other and break fellowship. But the gospel brings us together and says this is a fight that's worth fighting for. It's an important fight because it gets to the very heart of God. Jesus is about to die in just a few days. And one of the messages he wants to bring to his people is my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And that's a fight that you and I have to embark in. If you're wondering if you're in the majority in this room, just think of it this way. If it's effortless for you to be at ICC, then you're in the majority, okay? But if it's a struggle for you to be here, And you keep wondering, is there another church for me where I could be with people that are more like me? Then you're probably in the minority. And I think whether you're in the majority or in the minority, um, there has to be this common work of God that is done in our hearts that brings us together. One of the things I find so beautiful at ICC is how many mixed marriages there are, uh, interracial marriages, inter-ethnic marriages. It's to me such a powerful message of going beyond race, going beyond ethnicity. And I think that picture has to be captured in us as a church family as well. One of the final pictures we're given in Scripture is this. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 to 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What I find so fascinating is that even in heaven, we don't lose our ethnicity. You know, it's not temporary. You're going to be Korean forever. You're going to be Indian forever. You're going to be Caucasian forever and ever and ever, (laughs) whether you like it or not, you know? 
because we can recognize different races in heaven. They'll be black, brown, yellow, white, and on and on. And there's a beauty in that that God loves and desires and treasures. And we need to reflect that heart of God in our community. Let's pray. I don't think this kind of multi-ethnicity is something we can engineer through just programmatically. Like we're going to have an ethnic mixer night, you know? We're all going to come and square dance together with different races or something like that. This has to really be a gospel issue, the work of God in our hearts. And I, I wonder, I wonder what kind of bigotry each one of us carries around with us. Now, you may say, listen, man, I'm not a racist. Don't put that label on me. But I think there are often some very subtle bigotries and stereotyping that can seep into the very core of our soul. Something that John Piper had to confess in his own life about the way that he regarded black people growing up in the South. And his journey took him eventually to adopting a black daughter, raising him as his own child and leading her to the Lord. Listen, if you are in the comfortable majority here at ICC, I pray that Christ's heart would be demonstrated in you by the way that you go out of your way to reach out to those who may not feel as comfortable in this fellowship as you, rather than just cloistering around people that look just like you. And I hope if you're in the minority here at ICC, and really struggle to make this your community, that you would not give up that good fight, but that you would see the heart of Christ in that struggle and realize that all of us need to die to self and see the heart of God to be able to embrace one another as brother and sister in Christ. This is the picture that Jesus gives us. When you worship me in spirit and truth, with all of your heart, and this place truly becomes a house of prayer. People will take notice and be drawn to that witness of genuine worship. And it's going to cross across ethnic boundaries, age boundaries, all demographics. And I am going to gather for myself, God says, a people from all nations when that true worship is going on in my name. And as you come together like that from many different nations, recognize that you are invited to be part of one family under Christ. And to go out of your way to love one another and display the glory of God through a community like that. Can I just invite you to pray for a minute and think about that in your own heart? Maybe you need to repent in this moment of some latent bigotries that you hold in your heart, some stereotypes that color the way you view everyone from a certain group of people. Maybe you realize you've made some judgments against other people based on their ethnicity. Maybe that's something that God is inviting you to do in this moment. It's just repent of that and say, God, give me eyes of Christ to see my brother and sister the way you see them and love them as you love them. Let's just pray for a moment as we uh, close out our worship.